Martin Luther King had a dream. Martin Luther's dream rises like the cream. You gonna scream? Martin Luther King had a dream. A little poetry for you there on MLK Day. Milk Day. It's Milk Day. Talking to Miles earlier, and he had a joke. You know, there was that doom band, kind of a kind of like a heavy rock slash doom metal band called Harvey Milk. And his joke was start a doom band called Harvey MLK. I thought that was a good joke. Harvey MLK. It's interesting, though, you know, because growing up in secular 90s America, you know, going to school during that period, you know, you weren't taught about Jesus. They, they certainly didn't talk about Jesus at all in school or in the culture around you, but we learned a lot about MLK. And like when I think about growing up during that time, like not thinking about pop culture, not thinking about entertainment, but just thinking about school. It's basically just kind of a haze of MLK murals and Martin Luther King Jr. quotes. And we would always have an assembly the Friday before Milk Day. And uh, it was basically he was the demigod that we were taught about. And his word was like scripture. Just interesting to think about. Like detaching yourself from who he was and everything. Just the idea that you saw him constantly. Just constantly. And even in art class, I think about growing up and being in art class where when there was a project where we were supposed to do a portrait, we could choose to do a portrait of anybody we wanted. There was always at least one kid in class. I don't know if they were trying to get points by doing something profound or if they were doing it just because they genuinely believed in it. And really, it could have been either one. But somebody would always do a portrait of Martin Luther King Jr. And they would display those. Like thinking about junior high art class, we would do portraits and then they would display them in a glass case in the hallways. And without fail, there would always be at least one Martin Luther King Jr. Anytime there was a class project, somebody would do that. And then he was on all the murals. You just see his quotes posted around school. And then if you watch Nickelodeon, there was a lot of MLK material. So he really had this demigod status mythical difficult to really comprehend that he was a man and you can see that the way he's talked about today it's interesting the way people treat his word like scripture and not just in the sense that like oh he had some ideas that obviously had a great impact on people they had a great impact on american society but beyond that it's interesting to see the debates that emerge. People debate his word as if it's scripture. Like summer 2020, for example, I saw a lot of conservatives quoting Martin Luther King Jr. and being like, well, look, Martin Luther King Jr., he denounced riots here. Or with the critical race stuff that focuses so much on differentiating people based on their race, people being like, this is against everything Martin Luther King Jr. said. He said we should judge people by their character, not the color of their skin. You know, you can see where people on one side will interpret his words or, you know, pick up on certain things he said to support their own views. And then you can see on the other side where they're like, yeah, but look at this. On this one, this looks like he's like you can see where people on the left will then be like, well, here he said riots are the language of the unheard. 
Here he said riots are okay. Here's where he said we do need to make a distinction between race. So you can see where no matter who somebody is and where they come from, they have access to this demigod, this deified figure, Martin Luther King Jr., and they will interpret his quotes and analyze them almost like biblical scripture, as if that, as if that's a requirement, maybe not a requirement, but as if that's necessary for understanding current events. Because on one hand, you know, some of the same dynamics are still at play. They were at play when Martin Luther King Jr. was alive. Obviously, the topic of race has just been, that fire has been stoked even more in recent years. You know, we still live in American society. But, you know, this is a guy who died, what, like 60 years ago? I don't know the exact year. It's been a while. It's been quite a while. But people still look to his words to try to understand and comprehend today. And not just understand and comprehend, but they also try to use his words to support their own views or convince other people to see things their way. But look here, he said this here. And what it reminds me of when I see that, and you actually see this a lot. You see this debate a lot where people with different viewpoints are both interpreting Martin Luther King Jr. quotes as if it's scripture and trying to use it to reinforce their own point as if they can't just rest on their own point as it is or as if they can't just quote somebody who's alive today. I'm not saying you shouldn't pull from people from the past, but it's interesting how people go to that. And when I hear people doing that, when I hear people discussing Martin Luther King Jr. quotes and arguing over them, it reminds me a lot about people who argue about Christianity and the Bible, like these obnoxious conversations where someone's like, I don't even see, I don't even know where it, where does it even say in the Bible that abortion is evil? Where does it even say in the Bible that homosexuality is is against the, the laws of the Lord? Well, here's where it says, well, see what it says, a man shall not lay with another man. It reminds me of the way people argue and interpret the Bible. And it is the same thing because he's been deified, which is why people pull from him as if his words should convince you to see things a certain way. And I wonder if anybody's actually convinced by that. Like when someone's debating a current event today, even if it's something like race that plays into what he was dealing with then, I wonder if anybody's convinced when somebody pulls out a Martin Luther King Jr. quote and says, well, here, Martin Luther King Jr. said this, so you should think this way too. Does anybody actually convince each other when they do that? But why do you need to rely on his word? And the deification of people is so strange because people will get, they will interpret Martin Luther King Jr. in these very different ways, but they'll also pull completely different quotes that sometimes seem to be in contradiction. Like there are some things Martin Luther King Jr. said that would seem to be against the idea of riots or reparations or dividing each other based on our racial background. But then there's other things he said that would seem to reinforce the opposite. But you know what? He's, he was a man, and he said a lot of things. And as somebody who does a show and says a lot of things too, I mean, speaking for myself, I say things that contradict other things I say all the time. 
or maybe I'm respond. Maybe I feel differently on a given day. I mean, as I've said before, I'm not two faced. I'm a hundred faced. I think my basic principles stay the same, but I say things all the time that aren't necessarily hypocritical. I don't think I'm a hypocrite, but I do say things that might contradict something I might say on another day, maybe not about the same issue, but I might say something that seems contradictory or could be interpreted as a contradiction. And maybe it is an outright contradiction. We are fallen people and we contradict ourselves all the time. We contradict ourselves all the time. It's true. We, we do it all the time. And you know who I bet contradicted himself? You know, I'm not, I didn't get a degree in Martin Luther King Jr. studies, milk studies. But I would bet he contradicted himself a number of times, just based on the number of times he talked, based on how general some of his commentary was. You know, because he did tend to make large, sweeping points, which is why it impacted so many people. You know, he did talk about, he, he, he tried to address the bigger picture. I mean, that's what the, the I have a dream speech is. It's addressing the bigger picture. And when you talk that way, too, it's, it's very easy to get different things out of it. But he was a man. And as a man, he no doubt said things that might contradict other things he said. Which, you know, when somebody has been deified, though, that means it gives everybody a little something to take for their own use. And it's funny how people get into these arguments about his words as if that will be the thing that convinces somebody here and now to see things their way. It makes me think of what I've said about Hitler and Nazi Germany, how whenever you start using that as an example, you're guaranteed to now get into a debate over that. You're using Nazi Germany, you're using World War II as an analogy for something going on today. But the second that you use Nazi Germany or Hitler as an analogy, you're now going to get into an argument about Nazi Germany, and you're not even going to talk about the thing that's going on today, which is the thing you actually care about, because that's that's the reason you use Nazi Germany or Hitler as an analogy. But by doing that, you're willing the whole conversation into this conversation about Nazi Germany. It's just it's counterintuitive. And I feel the same way about Martin Luther King Jr., when people get into these debates about current events or situations going on today, and they're relying on his word like it's scripture, and they're choosing a quote of his that fits their own idea, and then the person they're arguing with is doing the same thing, and maybe they're also interpreting those quotes differently, you end up getting into a debate about Martin Luther King Jr. and what he meant. You're not even talking about the thing that's going on now. And no matter how profound you think his words were, he was a man. And he was alive at a different time. You can draw from that, but I don't understand why that's used as... Um, people, people think that that's going to be the solution to their argument. They think that's going to be their point. And at this point, too, I think a lot of people roll their eyes at that. Not that they necessarily roll their eyes at Martin Luther King Jr., but they roll their eyes anytime somebody invokes him. In the same way somebody who's atheist would roll their eyes when somebody invokes the word of Jesus or the Bible. It's, I mean, it's sort of how I felt when I was in junior high and, and we would be in art class and somebody would, oh, you can do a portrait of anybody you want. 
and somebody would do Martin Luther King Jr., it was kind of like, yeah, it's a little obvious. It's not particularly creative. It's not that you shouldn't draw him if you want, but somebody would always do it. Any given time, walking down the hallway in junior high, you would see some poorly drawn, poorly painted Martin Luther King Jr. uh, photo or uh, artwork. But it's just funny to see that. And, you know, think about when a man becomes mythical. I mean, it makes me think of the mafia, you know, uh, Charlie Lucky Luciano, one of the most famous mobsters of all time. He has this almost mythical status And I kind of roll my eyes when he gets brought up, too, because it's so obvious. Even though he was a real man, he was a real mafia boss. If I'm watching a documentary and it kind of brings him into things unnecessarily, like it'll be like, oh, he he did this with Charlie Luciano. And sometimes it's bullshit. Like sometimes if you're watching, you might be reading a book, like a lot has been attributed to Charlie Lucky Luciano that he didn't actually do. People have said he actually was way more, he was incredibly influential, but people have said that he made certain decisions that changed the mafia, that it turns out he actually didn't. As we've gotten more sources on the early mafia, we found out that he wasn't quite, he was revolutionary in some ways, but he wasn't as revolutionary as we think. But people have assigned him this mythical demigod status. And so sometimes you'll be reading a book about the mafia You'll be watching a documentary and they invoke the name of Lucky Luciano. And half the time it's bullshit. But it's very easy to also, when he comes up, to kind of roll your eyes when you shouldn't. Like, for example, the guy that I've talked to, uh, De Leonardo, Michael De Leonardo, when I was talking to him, he mentioned that his grandfather, who was a contemporary, a little bit older than Charlie Luciano, But he mentioned that uh, his grandfather had met Charlie Luciano in New York in the 1920s. And it's funny because my initial reaction was to be like, bullshit, that's bullshit. Uh, Of course he did. But you know what? Nothing else Michael has said has been bullshit. Whether it was whether any interview he's ever done with anybody, his government testimony that he did in court my conversations with him, other people's conversations with him. He's never he's never tried to lie or exaggerate. He just he honestly tells it like it is. And I have a good bullshit meter for this stuff. But it's funny when he mentioned that his grandfather had met Luciano, my initial response was to roll my eyes because so many people have said that. And there's so much nonsense out there about Luciano and so many stories try to connect to him when he doesn't connect at all. But then I thought about it and I was like, you know what? His grandfather was a high ranking mafia member in the 1920s. So was Luciano. They both spent time in Manhattan. They were both high ranking members of different New York families. They probably did meet. Because Charlie Luciano was a man He mingled with other mafiosi. Michael's grandfather was absolutely an important mafia member at that same time. He probably did meet him. He didn't try to say they were best friends. He didn't try to say that there was anything special about their relationship. He just said that they were, they met in a club. He was told, his father told him that Luciano and his grandfather had met in a club once. I'm sure they did. When I actually sat and thought about it, I was like, it would actually it would actually be more strange if they didn't pass each other, if they didn't rub shoulders once or twice. 
But when somebody reaches that mythical status, you almost, it, it's easy to treat them like a deity and almost give them more weight than they actually had. But it's also easy if you're like me to, to then think like it's all bullshit every time they come up when it's actually somewhere in the middle. And Martin Luther King Jr. is the same thing, you know, where it's like, no matter what you think about him, you know, I know people have kind of like with John Lennon, people are always like, oh, he he was a wife beater and a womanizer, blah, 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 you know. But it's like, no matter what you think about Martin Luther King Jr., just the phenomenon of him is crazy. The fact that a guy who was a man who gave some speeches, just like people today give speeches, would be the subject of every single art class, every single art project, somebody would use his face. The fact that I went through school and there were his quotes on the wall all the time. Whenever there was Milk Day, the fact that we would have an assembly where we talked about him. You know, even if there's an amount of mythology to that, just the fact that that happened at all, the fact that he was mythologized. Not everybody gets mythologized. So it's usually somewhere in in between where it's like, This person was a man who's been mythologized, but not every man gets mythologized. So no matter what you think, no matter how you interpret it, no matter how obvious it is, no matter how cliche it is, sometimes you just have to say, wow, it it actually is incredible. And I mean, that's something that just plays into celebrity in general, where I don't know who these celebrities are, like in terms of what they do, but I still know their names. Like, even now, I'm more removed from what that is. I'm more removed from Hollywood, the entertainment industry. But yet these people still enter my brain in some way. Like, I'll hear about some guy who's on Saturday Night Live today. I wouldn't even be able to tell you the last time I saw Saturday Night Live. But the fact that I know the name of an actor who's on that show right now, the fact that I even know their name, just the phenomenon of that is incredible. Not that that person deserves credit for that, but the phenomenon is something. But anyway, enough about that. Uh, speaking of celebrity, there's it's, it's another interesting turn of events recently. You know, as it's become more clear, I don't want to say that a certain side has won the culture war, but it's clear that there's an imbalance. There's a clear imbalance culturally. And one side of what people might call the culture war is certainly more dominant. And that's obvious everywhere you look. I I don't think I would say that anybody's won. But there's certainly a dominance. The weight has shifted. And as that's happened, it's interesting to see the people who were kind of trying to burn the candle at both ends. Where now they're throwing in with the side who has more weight. A good example of that is, uh, I was hesitant to comment on this, it's old news now, because two weeks goes by and something is old news in our world today, but the comedian Patton Oswalt, everybody probably heard about this, but you know, recently he did a, a show with Dave Chappelle, who's become controversial for relatively uncontroversial reasons. Basically, he's given pushback, cultural pushback on some of the ideas that are being pushed these days regarding gender and sexuality, you know, and people don't like the way he, maybe he's too flippant for people, but he gets demonized. He gets, he's, oh, he's a, he's such a bigot. 
Oh my God, Dave Chappelle, he's such a bigot. But the reality is what he said is not that controversial, which I always say, you know, I always say it's not truly controversial. I don't consider a manufactured controversy an actual controversy because there are real controversies. But the manufactured controversies don't even deserve to be regarded as true controversy. And you give them too much credit when you say that. But anyway, Dave Chappelle, as everybody knows, has become this... There's this manufactured controversy surrounding him for being insensitive, for being this... And Pat Oswalt played a show with him, and I guess he's he you know, and people came down on him for it. And he 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 posted a photo of himself online, like handwriting an apology letter, and wrote this long thing. But it's not just that he wrote like I'm so sorry for you know for being friends with this guy who has views, but but he, he talked about how he's grown as a person. Patton's like I've grown as a person, and I've learned things, and I don't agree with him. But but it's the throwing someone else under the bus. Because it's one thing to grow and change. And even if I don't agree with the direction somebody... And, and I'm, I've never been a Patton Oswalt fan, so I, I have no investment in him and his story. Uh, but uh, I know that he, he used to be a little more offensive. He was connected to Jim Goad, I knew that. And Jim Goad, I mean, if you're connected to Jim Goad at any point, you obviously weren't too concerned with sensitivity. Uh, but people, you know, if, if somebody does legitimately change, even if I don't agree with the direction, even if I don't agree with their views, I, I won't come down on somebody just for that. But when somebody throws somebody else under the bus, which is what Patton Oswalt did, you know, he tried to do it tactfully, but he still did it. And it was just embarrassing in general. To apologize in that way for a non-controversy, for, for being friends with a guy who has this uh, manufactured controversy surrounding him. I mean, and the same people who hate on Dave Chappelle now are the same people who loved him five years ago, which is usually how it goes. People like to tear down somebody who they once liked. But I've seen a few examples of this recently, because it's clear in that example that, you know, Patton Oswalt, he's siding with... Um, the more dominant side of culture right now. Even if he has had a realization about these gender and sex issues, you know, he's still, he's, he's siding with the, the more culturally dominant force. And he's doing it with his tail tucked between his legs, which is one thing. But then to throw somebody else under the bus speaks volumes to me. And there's a couple more examples of this where there's a couple people who... I guess you'd call them YouTube celebrities. I mean, at this point, there's not really much of a distinction between a YouTube celebrity and just a celebrity. And it seems like YouTube celebrities are actually bigger than the real celebrities these days. So why even make the distinction? But there's a guy, and these are guys I never liked. I never paid much attention to them, and I'm not going to name them. I try to avoid doing that. But there's a guy, he reviews music, and that, sh that should just tell you anything, anybody who's gotten famous on YouTube for reviewing music. But he kind of flirted, he kind of played both candles. He, he, tried, he burned uh, both ends of the candle a few years ago, about five years ago, when some of these issues were first coming up. 
And more recently, he's thrown in once again with the dominant side of this, the side that has ended up dominating culture more recently. He's sided with them, but he hasn't just sided with them and said, like, I've grown because he was one of those guys where he flirted with being a little more offensive. You know, both these guys who I'm talking about, they kind of flirted, flirted with shock humor. And now they've kind of been like, well, I've realized that I was in the wrong and I actually have learned and. You know, they've tucked their tails between their legs. But both of them have done this in a way where they now are denouncing people that they used to like and support. To a greater degree than just Pat and Oswalt being like, my friend Dave doesn't see things the way I see them, and it's kind of backwards, but I think by being friends with him, I can convince him to see things my way, maybe. I, cause I, which is just condescending. But these guys have just flat-out denounced people that they were willing to associate with a few years ago. And like I said, these are guys that I, I've never really paid attention to, but I'm aware of who they are. Again, just that phenomenon of celebrity. The fact that I even know who they are says something, despite not following them in any capacity. Uh, but one of these guys was like this, this fucking obnoxious music critic, just embarrassingly bad. His personality, there's, there's just a the worst of the worst as far as I'm concerned. And I felt this way before. I felt this way when I first came across him some years back. But he's just rabidly denounced these people that he was willing to support years ago. And then this other guy, he's, I don't know what you'd call him. I think he got famous for making funny YouTube videos. He, he made funny, oh dude, he's funny. He made stupid, I guess, YouTube videos that people thought were funny. And he used shock humor. And pretty much anybody who was kind of a flavor of the month, he would have them as guests on his podcast, including people that are now considered controversial. Again, it's part of a manufactured controversy. But he was willing to associate with people that are now considered controversial. And recently he's done this about face where he's he's not just because like some stuff came out where he said some very offensive things in an attempt to be funny. Far more offensive than anything these so-called controversial figures have said. This guy said some things that are far more shocking, but that's all it was is shock value. And I'm not a fan of shock for shock's sake. You know, yeah, it's, sometimes it's funny to, to push the envelope. Sometimes it's funny to go against the grain. But as an adult, I'm just, I don't really love just shock humor. Oh, I'm going to say that thing that's really offensive and it's going to rub people the wrong way. Yeah, I say things that are probably offensive. I know I do. But I try to do it in a way that's not just for the sake of shock humor. I like there to be some kind of nuance to it. But just saying an inappropriate word, just saying a word that you know is going to offend people without any context or nuance to it, that's just, they should be allowed to do that. But I don't find that funny in and of itself. But this guy used to do that, and then now more recently he's gone on this kick where he's like, I've changed and I've learned and I've grown, but you know what? Those people that I used to associate with are terrible people. They're terrible. He's doing that shtick, and that's always a sign that somebody hasn't changed and grown. Because if you change and you grow, no matter in what direction it is, you actually don't have a desire to denounce people that are similar to the way you used to be. And I think a good comparison would be alcohol or drugs or anything like that, where, you know, I've talked about this before, where there's a certain type of person, and I know them, I have friends like this who quit drinking, joined AA, 
And they now, the way they talk about people who drink, or the way they, the way they even talk about the way they used to live, you know, it's like they have to denounce it. They have to almost cast this shame onto it. And I understand if that's the only way that you can survive, if the only way that you can stop yourself from de- from destroying yourself with alcohol, for example, if the only way to do that is to demonize it and your survival depends on it, I would question that. But if that's what you think and that works for you, go ahead. But I'm even thinking about someone in particular that I used to drink with who quit drinking before I did. And this person, in my opinion, didn't have a terrible problem with alcohol. They just kind of partied like any young adult would. And this person does tend to, this person is very susceptible to cult-like thinking. I just know that about them. I like them. I respect them. But they, they are susceptible to cult-like thinking in the many ways it manifests in our world. And this person, like they, they the way they talk about alcohol and drinking, and I don't think they judge drinkers, but just the way they talk about them, I'm just like, huh. It seems like you're trying to prove something. It seems like you're trying to signal something. And it reminds me of these people who used to be a little more shocking, or they used to be willing to flirt with controversy or controversial figures. And now that they've joined the dominant cultural force, probably for their own survival or success, they probably think a part of them is probably motivated by, oh, things have shifted. And if I don't go along with it, I'm going to be left out. I want to make money. I want to keep fame and success. So a part of it is probably motivated by that survival in some form. But you can see with the way they're now denouncing people they used to be associated with and claiming they've changed and grown doesn't really signal growth to me. It signals something else. Because I think if you've actually transformed in some way, and I do feel I have in my life, you don't really feel the need to denounce the way you used to be. You don't feel the need to denounce the people that you used to be involved with. You actually understand them better. You can look back on it and say, huh, yeah, you know what? I might not agree with that anymore. I might have changed. But you know what? I understand it. And because I understand it, I would never throw them under the bus. I would never throw my old self under the bus. But these people are doing that. They're throwing their old selves under the bus. They're throwing their old friends and associates under the bus. And I don't think that's genuine. And two, for the people, too, who they're joining, those people shouldn't welcome them either because those are weak links. And anytime somebody denounces their old associates too heavily, especially if they throw them under the bus, they would do that to you in a heartbeat if things shifted again. So you get to see where some people are spineless, because that's what that is. It's spinelessness. And I don't think that true self-growth, and I hate that term, but I don't think that true self-growth, I don't think that true change is spineless. I think you actually get a stronger spine. I think your spine gets a little stronger and straighter. And you would never throw somebody under the bus, because that just curves your old spine. That gives you scoliosis. You know, if you change if you change at somebody else's expense, your spine gets curved and twisted. Doesn't make you stand up any straighter. And you'll probably throw your new friends under the bus just as easily. You're a weak link. 
And if you actually care about forming a strong bond or a strong chain, you don't want people like that around you. And they're obvious. It's very easy because you get away from the ideas. Let's get away from agreeing or disagreeing with what somebody believes, the way their views have changed. Let's just detach from all of that and just look at the idea of principles. And if your principles matter to you, somebody who will quickly shake their previous principles and denounce the people who they used to share those principles with is a dangerous person to have around. And I guarantee you, if the cultural weight shifted again, which it very well might, we live in very unsteady times. We live in very unsteady times. And I mean, just the way things have shifted over the last five years, because these two guys that I'm talking about, not Patton Oswalt, but these two uh, YouTube celebrities, and they're big, they have millions and you know, they have millions of fans and things like that. Things like that. Um, but where they were kind of burning the candle at both ends, they're guys who did the whole like, oh, I'm making fun of social justice warriors. Could you believe these social justice warriors, which I never liked that term. Just like I don't like the term woke. I always hated the term SJW, social justice warrior. It does refer to a certain type of person. But it's, again, a good example of a catchphrase or a buzzword. And when you use that, you actually hurt your argument. If you actually do have a valid criticism against those people, just launching into the buzzword actually does your point a disservice but these are both guys who they 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 did the whole like i'm making fun of sjw's thing and then now they're basically what they used to hate now they're acting just like those people because the incredible thing is is that in a short five years what seemed like a fringe phenomenon the idea of the outraged social justice warrior as people called them those people have immense influence now even if they're still just a vocal minority, we can see where a large portion of the majority is parroting similar ideas and giving it space in the mainstream. Giving it space in the mainstream. We can see where that's happened in a very short amount of time. Unbelievably short. Because back then, people were like, this is just a fringe idea that's on college campuses and like corners of social media. And now we can see where the military is talking that way. Every major corporation, the government. It's actually difficult to socialize with people without that stuff coming up all the time, depending on where you live and who you know. To the point where I can talk to my dad, who doesn't have the internet, and he brings that stuff up. You know, it's incredible how quickly that stuff has become a constant part of the conversation. And even though it's become dominant, even though it's influenced Hollywood, corporate news, the government, military, even though it's influenced internet censorship, even though you can ruin your life for saying the wrong thing that goes against those ideas or doesn't even go against them, but just simply doesn't go along with them. It's shaky ground. And so seeing these guys who were, who got their initial momentum was in part influenced by pushing back on those things because they saw other people doing that. It's not like these guys ever had principles. Like these two guys in particular, I know never had principles. 
but they got a little bit of some of their fame came from making fun of those things at the very least because they saw other people making fun of those things it had a market and they capitalized on that but now that that stuff has actually become this big cultural force and those guys have now sided with it they're probably doing themselves a disservice even if they genuinely believe it which i don't think they do i really doubt if they genuinely believe it in part because they're trying to denounce other people. They're trying to shame other people. If they truly changed, if they truly had a change of heart and have new views, they would just live life accordingly. Because that's what happens when you actually make a meaningful change in your life. Or if you realize you were wrong about something or you were living the wrong way. If your new view is truly meaningful to you, you just live it now. That's how it is for me and not drinking. I would never denounce alcohol. I would never denounce drinkers. I do have criticisms. Of course, I have criticisms of it. But I don't feel the need to... Those don't give me any momentum. It doesn't actually make me more resolute. It doesn't make me more sober. It doesn't make me healthier or stronger to talk shit about drinking, to talk shit about alcohol. There's aspects of it that suck. Drunk driving. People do horrible things when they're drunk. But it doesn't give me any momentum to focus too much on that and to make it a part of my own shtick, my shtick. It doesn't give me any momentum because simply living my life the way it is now is better. And that's what gives me the momentum. And I've had my views have changed in other ways, too. You know, I'm a more positive person. I mean, lately, it's been kind of hard lately. But, you know, I don't talk shit about negative people. I mean, it is kind of funny to me. Like when, when you talk about like some of the nasty interactions that people have these days. Like I, I talk about internet comments sometimes because I find the humor in it. But I also understand it. Like because I used to be a lot nastier too. I used to have a lot more. What I would say is I used to have a lot more pride in my negativity than I have now. It's still there, but I used to have a lot more pride in it. But I would never attack somebody for being negative or cynical. Because that has a function. Cynicism has a function. And some people go too far into it. They, they get too proud of their cynicism. They identify with it too deeply. And I had to get away from that. I had to change myself in that way. But I wouldn't denounce cynical people. Like, I still have friends who honestly... Sometimes they can be a bit much. They'll go off about things and I'll think, hey, you know, I don't feel that way anymore. But I would never think about saying, oh, they're wrong. I would never signal to somebody else that that person is worse. I would never separate myself from that person. Because I understand it. I understand exactly what that is to feel that way. And I know that at any point I could feel that way again, which is part of it. That's the funny thing is like seeing these guys denounce their old habits and associations. Don't you realize you could feel that way again? Don't you realize that you could have the desire to express that again? And then what would you do? You'd have an identity crisis. And when you know that you could feel that way again, you, one, have less desire to completely just denounce it, 
to disparage it, but you also are less likely to fall into that pattern again because you know that it could come back. It's why when I say that quitting drinking has been easy, which it has been actually, now that it's been like over four years, it's been surprisingly easy. But I'm not overconfident in that. And I know that at any point I could feel the desire to have a drink. But that actually makes me stronger that I know that. Because if I, if I went around saying, I'll never drink again, I, I don't, I, I, I'm never going to have a desire to have a drink again. That's probably the moment that I make myself weak enough to, to go buy a six-pack, to go buy a bottle, you know? So when you admit to yourself that you could feel that way again, even if it seems foreign right now, you're less likely to fall into that. And you know what? These guys too, these guys that I'm talking about, it's so clear that they are just shifting with the trends, maybe trying to survive, but nobody respects that. Even the people who you're now in agreement with don't actually respect you for that. Even if they pat you on the head, it's a patronizing pat on the head. And they have something over you. They have something on you. At any point, they could pull that card on you if you misbehave. So it's, but it's interesting to see that when you, when you detach yourself from your own opinions, from your own take, it's just interesting to see human beings do that, to see human beings in real time go, oh shit, I've got to change with the times. Not because I genuinely have had a change of heart, but because I need to capitalize on this. I need to stay current. It's like seeing somebody get a new haircut. That was always funny in school. The person who comes to school with the new haircut that everybody has. And it's, nobody thinks it's cool because they're just like, everybody already has that haircut. Everybody already has that haircut, dude. And we know why you got it. You got that haircut when it was already safe. And you're probably the same person who will talk shit on your old haircut. And make fun of people who still have it. (laughs) Because that's the same thing. It is fashion. It is decoration. It isn't you. Because if it was you, you wouldn't need to signal it. It wouldn't be so obvious. But when you see somebody do that in real time, and you know it, and everybody else knows it. And it's funny, too, because it does play into, like, explanation and description. You know, I always make that distinction between explaining, which is often dishonest. Whenever you notice that somebody's explaining something, just notice how often it's coming from a place of dishonesty. Like, they're trying to convince you, convince themselves. They're explaining it when they could just describe. Because if they describe it, well, they're just describing how it is. But if they're explaining it. And when somebody makes a sudden shift, when they claim to have seen the light, they're often giving a lot of explanations while they do it. They're often saying a lot more than they need to. I mean, Patton Oswalt's little apology for being uh, 30 years of friendship with Dave Chappelle, the little thing he wrote was interesting because it was pure explanation. It wasn't a description. He could have written a description. I mean, I think it's silly in that situation to write anything about it at all. He could have written a description. 
He wrote an explanation, and there's something fundamentally dishonest and spineless about an explanation like that. Because if you've actually changed, and if you're actually confident in who you are, and why you do the things you do, all you need to do is describe them, and even then, you only need to describe those when it's completely necessary. An explanation is you leaning in. It's you lunging. A description is calm, it's measured, and it's accurate. And I noticed that with these people, these people who have this sudden public, they're, they're public, they're changing their public image before your very eyes. They're trying to cater to a certain group of people. They're trying to get the mob from swallowing them whole. They try to explain their way out of it. And you can always taste the dishonesty. You can hear the dishonesty. You can sense it. It's almost palpable. It's all, you, you, you can feel it. And if you're being dishonest yourself, you might not notice that. Or if you're in a fog yourself, you might not notice it. But if you're confident in who you are and you notice somebody behaving that way, it, it you know makes your skin crawl. And you don't even hate them for it. You don't even judge them for it. You just think, oh, that's making my skin crawl because I know what's going on. Like I've only had to fire one person in my life at a job. There was a lady... She was a, she was like, she had gray hair. So she was probably at least in her fifties or sixties and uh, we had to fire her and it wasn't even my decision to fire her, but she'd been causing a lot of trouble, which is funny because she was actually a lawyer. She had her law degree, but she was working this other job. She wasn't a mean person, but she was obnoxious and she was making other people's jobs harder to do all the time. And we just decided that it wasn't worth it. I didn't have anything to do with it, actually. My boss and another manager who had my same job on a different shift made the decision to get rid of her. But guess who came in the day that she was supposed to be fired? I, it was my shift. So I actually, me and my boss had to be the ones to fire her, even though I didn't really have any interaction with her. It was good experience, though. We were nice to her and everything, but we told her we had to let her go. And it was weird, though, she launched right away into an explanation, which I completely understand. I completely understand in that situation why you're going to grasp for straws and feel put off. And, you know, it's not it was awful. It was an awful experience for me to have to do that to somebody. I took no pleasure in it. Some people do take pleasure in that shit and they're sick. But uh, I felt no pleasure. It was it was good experience, but it was also a horrible experience. And what's interesting though, right away she launched into this explanation where she goes, well, I'm an alcoholic and I have ADD, ADHD. And keep in mind, this is like a 50 or 60 year old woman. And my boss, she was like, listen, I'm sorry you have those problems, but she, she was coming up with excuses as if we were going to go, as if our response was going to be, oh, you're an alcoholic and you have ADHD. Well, we're keeping you. When you put it that way, we're going to keep you, you know, but uh, she was just grasping at straws, coming up with excuses. But what's funny is what came out of that is, is like my boss said to her, my boss was kind of a, kind of a white trash lady. I liked her, but she, she definitely didn't, uh, she wasn't very tactful in her words, but she was like, I hope you don't go home and drink after this. 
And the lady goes, oh, well, I haven't drank in 30 years. <laughs> and so it's like, well, why'd you tell us you're an alcoholic then? I understand that the philosophy that you're an alcoholic for life, if you ever were. But it was weird that she told us as an excuse that she's an alcoholic. But then when my boss made a joke, kind of a, you know, kind of a dark joke, like, I hope you don't go home and drink because of this. The lady was like, well, I haven't drank in 30 years. And it's like, well, that just tells you she was being dishonest right there. It tells you that she was giving an excuse, an explanation right there. But I remember it because it was like right away she was trying to explain herself. And I don't, it's a bad position to be in. You know, anybody who's in that situation is probably going to launch into an explanation or an excuse. But it was just interesting to see somebody just do that right away. Like right, instead of being like, well, I don't understand. Or can you tell me more about why you're letting me go? Or here's an argument as to why you should keep me. It was like right away, she was like explaining why she is the way she is. And I don't know what she wanted to achieve from that, but it was sad. I'm an alcoholic and I have ADHD. She probably uses that excuse a lot. Oh, well, I haven't drank in 30 years. Okay, and why'd you tell us that? What does that have to do with anything? But when someone, but you know, the reason I bring that up too, though, is because I think these guys who are doing this about face, who are explaining why they've changed their views and they are denouncing other people and they're, they're offering these explanations, they kind of remind me of people who are in the hot seat. I think they, well, they feel like they're in the hot seat. Because they know that the mob could come for them. Maybe the mob has already come for them. And they feel like they're in the hot seat. They might feel like they're in a meeting where they don't know if they're going to get fired or what's going to happen. And so they're grasping at straws. They're trying to throw anything at the wall. And even though I understand that, I understand what it is to to feel that way. Because, I mean, it could be like a breakup, too. Like if your girlfriend's talking to you about the future of your relationship and toying around with breaking up, like you might try to explain things and grasp at straws to try to change her mind, but that's not going to work because people sense it. People sense when you're doing that. They sense when you're being dishonest. And we live in a very interesting time as far as that sense goes because I don't remember ever living in a time where I was exposed to so much dishonesty from normal people you know yeah people lie people stretch the truth people exaggerate but I don't remember people actually going full speed into pure deception the way they are right now and I think a lot of that is this fear mindset this hysteria it's made people do strange things and I would say that's unpredictable, but it's actually completely predictable. It's unsurprising, actually. It doesn't make it any less strange. And I'm trying not to judge people for it. I don't want their bullshit to rub off on me. I don't want to have to deal with their shit, because the problem is, is there's a lot of people pointing fingers. And that's exactly what I'm talking about here with these YouTube celebrities, is that they're pointing fingers. They're not just saying, I've changed, and I understand things better. I've had time to think about myself. They're saying, but look at those guys over there. They're pieces of shit. And I don't want anything to do with those pieces of shit. Did I say, did I tell you those guys are pieces of shit? 
And you know what? The people who you're joining love that too. Even though they know that you're being a worm too, they also like that you're denouncing those people because they would love nothing more than for their enemies' friends to turn on them. And if things were severe enough and those people were going to be executed, they would make you do it. Because that ensures your loyalty. When you turn on your friends or you turn on your associates and you denounce the way that you used to be, the people you're joining love for you to prove it by being the one with your hand on the rope as the guillotine goes down. They want you to do it. That Because you prove your loyalty that way. And you can't go back from that very easily. So even though that's not literally happening, we still operate from that mindset. And like I've joked about before, like I was watching some show. It was a show. They had, they had some politicians on as a guest. It was a corporate news show where they had pundits and I think some politicians were on there and they were talking about Trumpsfeld. And I, I got this distinct feeling that like deep down in their hearts, deep down in their gut, maybe, maybe not in their heart, because what I'm talking about is pretty heartless. But deep down in their heart or in their gut, their heart gut, it was like they were almost trying to say, I don't understand why we can't just execute these people. Because that's what we've always done. Throughout human history, what we've always done with the old regime is we hang them or chop their heads off. And it's almost like there's this cognitive dissonance that people are experiencing in today's world where it's like, aren't we supposed to be killing those people? And because we can't do that, we have to find these other ways to express it, which is why I think all of this stuff is so protracted, even though that's, that's horrible and it's, it's a good thing that we don't do that anymore, at least not right now. But it's a good thing that we're not just killing the old regime or killing our enemies all the time. I mean, it is going on, but the reason why we don't just do it, why we don't just kill the last president, kill his followers, you know, I'm glad we're not doing that. But it causes this all to be protracted because it just, there's no shift. Whereas if you just killed the last regime, it would just be like, well, they're done. And anybody who still is still loyal to them is going to be killed too. And we'll just be done with it. Just this swift act of brutality. And then you move on. And that's what humans have done forever. And now we live in a world where it's harder to do that, if not impossible, at least in America right now. And so I think that gives people this kind of cognitive dissonance, this weird uh, indigestion in their gut. Because when I was watching these people talk about Trumpsfeld and his supporters, reading between the lines, it was almost like they were all sitting there in a state of confusion thinking, aren't we supposed to just kill these people and move on? That's still in us. You know, it's like we're not that far removed from that. And it still goes on still goes on in different parts of the world. You could say it still goes on here in some ways, just not as obvious. But we're seeing a lot of that primitive behavior. We're seeing a lot of that primitive mindset. It just comes out in different ways. It comes out in the form of reputation destruction, finger pointing. But that's always a sign that somebody doesn't truly believe in their principles. Because my opinion is that a principled person has no desire to do that. 
because they know what's right. They feel it and they live it. And uh, it doesn't require sacrificing other people to uphold those principles. And when you sacrifice other people to signal that you've had some sort of change, all you're doing is signaling weakness. And so just like it's an interesting time to observe this dissonance in people, this dishonesty, it's also interesting how unconfident people are. There's a lack of confidence behind it, too, which is why I say that we're on shaky ground. And, you know, there are certain situations professionally, personally, that where you have to put your principles aside. And I think everybody should do that a little bit. I think everybody should put their principles to the side a little bit for the sake of the greater good sometimes. But uh, without lying to yourself, without being deceptive, but just I think everybody should be willing to put their arms down, their weapons down. But, uh, you know, you, if you know that if you truly believe in what you believe in, you don't have to sacrifice anybody else to uphold that. And nothing can shake you from it either. But because we are living in a time with so much dissonance, so much dishonesty, people's guts are all twisted up. They have this gut feeling, but they don't even remember what it is. They're so distracted. Everything is so distorted. That tells you you can't really count on anything right now. And the fact that things have changed as rapidly as they have should tell you that you shouldn't plant your flag anywhere right now. You should not plant your flag anywhere. And uh, when you see people doing that, I think it's natural to be skeptical. And that's, that's what I see some people doing right now. But we're still early in on this process. We're still very early in. And when you see these guys, these internet celebrities, these comedians, whoever they are, when you see them in panic mode, saying, well, well, look at those guys that I used to know. Aren't they bad? Me, I'm, I've changed. Those guys are bad. They're not doing themselves any favor. They're showing their cards a little too early. And if they truly changed, if they, if they truly do see things differently now, they would have no desire to do that. But I'm curious to see how many more people do it. How many more people will feel the pressure? Because a lot of people who aren't famous do that. A lot of people you know, a lot of people that in your personal life have probably done that and you've probably seen it. But the stakes are a little lower because they aren't public figures. Although everybody is a little bit. Anybody on social media or anybody playing those games, they do it a little bit. But it's a little more low stakes. But it's been a very interesting time for that. When you, when you detach yourself from your own opinions, your own feelings about it, it's simply sociologically interesting to see how everybody falls into place like coordinates on a graph. Because that's kind of what it is. But you know what? Those coordinates are constantly changing. The line is changing. 
I don't even know what that graph is going to look like in two years, in a year, tomorrow. So I'd be very careful about showing your cards now, especially if you are concerned about survival. And I've probably shown my cards more than maybe I should. Maybe on this show I say a little too much sometimes, but hey, I'm like milk. I'm like Harvey Martin Luther King Jr. I contradict myself sometimes. But you want to give yourself that right. Because that's actually one of the the greatest freedoms of all (laughs) is actually that you can contradict yourself and you can contradict yourself without even needing to address it without and without being a hypocrite too. You know, you can contradict yourself because you have the freedom to do so. And when if you're contradicting yourself today you know, opposed to the, what you were saying yesterday. If, if what you're saying today contradicts what you said yesterday, well, I wouldn't be too confident in that because you very well are going to say something tomorrow or the next day that contradicts this. And what contradicts this right now very well might be the same opinion, the same feeling you had yesterday. Because... Part of living in a time where it's difficult to trust everything around you is that it becomes that much more difficult to trust yourself. But don't be afraid of contradiction. Don't be afraid of contradicting yourself. Have principles. But don't feel like you're going to be nailed to the cross for it either. Because chances are it's going to be you who's doing the nailing. And when I see these public figures come out there and make these bold declarations these declarations of allegiance to the new dominant cultural power, what I really see is just them nailing themselves to the cross. This land is mine God gave this land to me This brave, this golden land to me And when 